And Father, once more, we've come to this place for fellowship, Lord, fellowship with one another and fellowship with you. And Lord, as we open your word tonight, once again, I just pray, God, that you would meet us in a very personal way, preparing us, Lord, for this coming week and every good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 6. We'll do a bit of review and then we'll pick up in verse 22. And as I mentioned last week, or scheduled for the next couple of weeks, next Sunday night we are not going to be in Second Chronicles. We are meeting. We are going to have an agape feast at 5 o'clock, so we'll be meeting an hour early and having fellowship together. And then we are going to have a movie night, so we invite you to come out for that time of fellowship. Also, Christmas Eve, we are not having our Sunday, the 23rd, we are not having our Sunday evening service, but we are moving it to the next day, Monday night, for Christmas Eve. And then the following Sunday, which is the 30th, we will be having our regular service. We'll be back in Second Chronicles and moving forward. What we've been looking at in this section of Scripture, we've been looking at Solomon. Solomon has completed the temple, and now he has dedicating it to the Lord. And so what we're seeing is, as Solomon is dedicating this building, we see attributes of this building, which is to be God's dwelling place. Now, we've been equating the temple, that holy house that Solomon built in Jerusalem, to the temple, a holy house which God is building in us. What makes a holy house so holy? Well, for us, it's in 1 John 4, 12 through 16. It says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. God dwells in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, a God bides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. And then there's that temple again in Solomon's day, as we saw previously in chapter 5 of Second Chronicles, verse 13, it says, Indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, and they, were lift, and they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so again, Solomon, he dedicated this house to God. And as he dedicated this house to God, God inhabited, the Spirit filled it. It's just proof of the existence of God and that we're given glory to God. And it's the same thing. As you dedicated your body, as you gave yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ on that day when you became born again, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. God came and dwelt inside of us, and it's the proof. 
It's the proof of my born-again experience and that I understand and I know that God is with me because my desires, they're not what they were before. My passions are directed towards the thing that God has set my face to. And as I see these things and I experience these things, I just know the reality of God with me. So this being the case, that temple and our bodies, they need to be something very unique. There should be something special about them. There should be something different from all others. But again, maybe the best comparison that we can make is who we used to be versus who we are now. So you can build a building, we can build a church building, but the only thing that sets it apart from all others is the presence of God's glory. What's the presence of God's glory in our church, in any church? It's God's people who inhabit it as God inhabits us. Well, here in Solomon's discourse of dedication, what we've been seeing is what sets a holy structure off from all others. And there's Three main attributes. We started last week and we saw that a holy house is to be a house of prayer. We saw that in verses 1 through 21. Tonight we'll see a holy house is to be a house of praise, verses 22 through 40. And then thirdly, a holy house is to be a house of fellowship, verses 41 through 42. So first, a house of prayer. Well, we saw in verses 12 through 13, it says, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord... That's the place of sacrifice where sin is covered. In the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands, for Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it, knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. As I made mention last week, bronze is a picture of judgment, and what Solomon is doing is he's presenting himself as that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He has his arms open up, open wide, in a sign of surrendering, and he's surrendering himself before the Lord. And the body language here, maybe comparison to the body language today, we in prayer can so pull within ourselves. Solomon is wide open before the Lord. Solomon understands that, well, God knows him even better than he knows himself. His father David told him that God understands the intent of his thoughts. And as far as Solomon's thought process, that's okay, because he understands that he serves a gracious God, that God is merciful and he's gracious. And so he can come before the Lord And he can lift up his arms before God, just being wide open, just surrendering himself in prayer to the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, we are told, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so this isn't an arrogance before the Lord, but this is just simply a boldness before the Lord based upon who God is. And again, at some point, there was a changeover. Paul told us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Now, God, God's going to answer prayer according to his will. He's not going to say, okay, that person's got his hands folded, that person has his hands spread. But there's just a beautiful picture here of Solomon on that bronze altar just offering himself up to God. 
understanding the graciousness of God, that he is now dwelling in a physical way amongst his people as that temple has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he just simply wants to give God the glory. We saw how Solomon last week, how he started his prayer with the giving of thanks and the counting of blessings. Again, we saw that in verses 1 through 21. Now here in verses 22 through 40 tonight, we'll see where Solomon in his praise has structure and forethought. There's nothing wrong with just opening your mouth and speaking to God. Matter of fact, we're told of times such as that when we're going through hardship, when we're going through trials, that we just open our mouth and just trust in the Lord. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And the context of what is being spoken of in Romans chapter 8 is the hardship that we deal with. And it's coming before the Lord and going through a very difficult trial and not knowing and really understanding even the direction that we need to direct our prayers. But it's just being open to the leading of the Spirit. And we're told here in Romans what I just read and that the Spirit will make intercession. God will guide and direct our prayers. Again, we have those things that are going on at times in our lives and we just don't understand why. And we don't know what to even pray before the Lord, but the Lord honors that, the Lord will bless that, and the Lord will lead us in that. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, it says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor, who has taught him? And obviously, nobody. We submit ourselves, and again, that's the idea behind Solomon in the raised hand, the universal sign of surrender, and he's just surrendering himself to the Lord because here, not so much a trial, but a major blessing, and he's overwhelmed, and the people are as well. And so it's not about asking God to come according to our will, but Solomon is surrendering himself according to the will of God. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And so again, this is Solomon's desire, and we have this benefit of the Spirit working in Solomon's heart to see how this equates to us. Again, you have this holy house, the temple. We have this holy house of the Spirit, our bodies, and what are to be the attributes of such structures? Well, again, Solomon has forethought and structure in his prayer time. And he's praying for seven specific things. Seven specific things of praising God relative to the time, the nation, and future circumstances that we can draw parallels into our times, <clears throat> excuse me, and into our lives as well. Jesus encouraged us to have structure in our prayer time. There's nothing wrong with just a quick, heartfelt prayer. But there's got to be those times that we set aside for prayer as well, and we consider the words that we are praying, and we consider what we're praying for. Do you set aside time to pray for your nation? The Bible is very clear about that, and the governing authorities. Do you lift up the hurting? Again, we have our email prayer request prayer chain, and there's a lot of people that are dealing with <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of heavy things, and they're seeking intercessory prayer. They're seeking brothers and sisters to come before the Lord on their behalf. Um, 
Last Sunday, there was a young man, Sal and Lydia sent me the prayer request just before I came out to teach last Sunday morning. A uh, little boy had an infection in his brain, and he was going to have to have surgery. Well, they went through the whole process, and they sent me an email today thanking the church for our prayers because everything came out well for him, and he's on the road to recovery. And so what are those people seeking after? They have this intense situation, this little child who's dealing with this life-threatening issue, and they come before the Lord, not just themselves, but they open it up to the church that we would intercede on their behalf as well. We need to once again understand and realize the powerful thing that prayer is and that how God moves when we come together collectively. You need to understand, we as the church once again, the power of that email prayer request prayer chain that again instantly whatever's going on in your life you can have over 80 people praying for the situation and there's power in that god honors that we need to receive that that information is in the bulletin if you want to be part of the people who pray or if you need something prayed for so as we're looking at solomon and we're looking at his structure in prayer here we see seven specific things as i said before and the first one is solomon solomon prays for justice verses 22 through 23 if anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants bring retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Want to be in the will of God according to your prayer? Then pray according to the attributes of his divine nature. And in this particular case, it's justice. When we studied the book of Exodus so long ago, we saw a lot of the details. We saw the Ten Commandments, but there was a lot of details in how society was to operate. And a lot of the purpose behind that was so that all men, all members of that nation would be treated fairly. And it's God's intent that mankind, especially those who represent him, would do so because God is not a respecter of persons. We ought not to be a respecter of persons as well. It's why either you had to go to the lake of fire or Jesus had to go to the cross because God is just. Because of sin, there had to be the penalty paid. And since God's sense of justice is obviously so great, somebody had to pay that price, we couldn't pay the price, and so Christ paid the price for us. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, again speaking of the dynamics of the nature of God, says that he keeps mercy for thousand, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Without repercussions for sin, as I've said so many times, then we don't realize what a blessing, a true blessing grace is. Matter of fact, as grace even exists, unless judgment exists. And so Solomon is understanding that there's oaths to be made and, and there's dealings between one another. And as they come to the temple, the idea is to bring God into the equation in their ministry or their dealings with one another. Justice in the land is essential if citizens are to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Problem in our land Justice isn't pursued so much anymore. Matter of fact, our perceived rights have taken the place of the common sense of justice, and we suffer the repercussions because of that. We suffered the repercussions as a nation. 
And so, as God has given us his law, he has shown us what is necessary of a people to dwell together. The establishment of our nation, we have our our laws, and as we kept our laws and as we followed our laws, our nation did well. When we step outside of that, again, we suffer the repercussions. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Solomon realized the value of justice to a society, and so he entreats God, If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this place, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants. The idea is your servants have a desire, Lord, to bring you into their everyday life. They make the pilgrimage, the trip to come to this place that they know that God dwells in. And as they understand that, they're bringing their everyday situations before you, Lord. And he's just asking his prayer is is that God would move into the fabric of their society, direct their ways. And as they do, he understands the blessings that come from that. Second thing that we see in Solomon's prayer is military calamity in verses 24 and 25. Or... If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive sin, uh, forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them and to their fathers. And we see this happen. We'll see it happening in Chronicles. We saw it in Second Kings as well. Israel, when the nations, Assyria, came and was at their very door. King Hezekiah, remember his prayer? It was a prayer of repentance. It was a prayer of understanding where he was at and why these things are happening. They, see, they had seen what happened to their sister, the northern country of Israel, and here Judah was going down the same line. And there was a genuine repentance, and God restored and God kept them from calamity. There, there was still military defeat. A lot of the cities were destroyed, but God kept Jerusalem during that time. But then there came the time when man was just completely hard-hearted and no longer sought after the Lord. And that's when Babylon came and the southern kingdom of Judah fell. So Solomon presents this occurrence of military calamity almost as a reality that these things are going to happen. Well, Solomon, as we all do, understands the nature of man and how we can so walk away from God, especially even during times of blessings, that we don't seek him to such a degree as we did before. This enemy has come up against the land. God has allowed a sword, if you will, to be brought against the land, and the people are defeated. And when the people are defeated, there's just the necessary reminder of that cleansing agent of repentance to come before the Lord, to recognize the direction that we have taken and know that we have wandered away from the Lord in the Lord's way and to have a desire and to make a commitment to come back to him based upon his word. I didn't read it this year, but Abraham Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation in 1863 Lincoln recognized the concept of God's protection over a nation in times of military tribulation. France 
I'm, I don't remember if it was Napoleon's son or grandson. He was in um, Mexico, and they were m- making moves as far as taking territories in the United States. The United States is at civil war. There's other threats that exist out there. And, and Lincoln, when he's making this Thanksgiving proclamation, <clears throat> has to be considering the things that are going on both within and outside the nation and realizes their vulnerability and their weakness during this time and how God God has chosen to continue, even though there's thousands of people dying on the battlefield, God has kept the nation, and we know he eventually even restored it. And so the Civil War lasted until 1865. This proclamation was made in 1863, almost two years before the end of the war. It states, and I'm just reading a section of it, in the midst of a civil war of unequal magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, and laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed. No human counsel hath devised, nor any moral hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. The South was seeking England's assistance during that time, that England would enter into the war and help the South fight the North. If that happened, we probably would have a split nation even today. But God and his providence kept England from entering into the war, and we know the North eventually prevailed. It would probably be considered unconstitutional for one of our politicians to write something such as what Lincoln wrote then, but it was back then that men understood the hand of God, understood that God sought and did work in the lives of mankind that God, his grace was spread upon this nation in a very obvious way. We unfortunately today, we as a nation, have forgotten that. There needs to be a great repentance. There needs to be another great revival. And the only way that that's ever going to happen is through God's people as we seek out the Lord and we're proactive in our Christian life. The third thing that we see in Solomon's praying prayer is sustained rain, verses 26 through 27. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them in a good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Well, without refrigeration, without Stater Brothers and uh, I don't even know what markets are out there anymore, Ralph's, without, uh, without Walmart and without uh, Sam's and all of these other supermarkets, food, food was grown and then consumed. There was very little storage that could be done at that time other than grain and such. And so they would be depended for their yearly rain. And so they would look, the Jews would look, God's people would look at rain as a gift from God because they would understand they would be able to grow their crops. And as they would grow their crops, they would be able to produce their food and life would be so much easier and life would be blessed. But when God held back the rain, well, that was a warning from the Lord. He was trying to get his people's attention. In Leviticus 26, 19, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And the idea is he's going to bring drought upon the land. Well, in California, 
We've experienced that in the last few years. Some of our great lakes have been reduced almost to mud puddles. And you have to understand, especially we as the church, that this is from the hand of God. Because when the rain is held, it's not just some scientific purpose. It's by the reasoning of God. And we need to recognize that. We need to understand it. 911 and those attacks, it wasn't just some renegade terrorist. This is God sending us a wake-up call. And we have to understand these things and how much more so the Lord's church. My wife and I were driving back from the Bible college last Thursday, and it's pouring down rain. And it's just a blessing to see the rain, something that we haven't seen in quite a long time. I remember it was around the time when I first got saved. I was playing basketball for the church basketball team. And there was this one gentleman that we would get together and we would offer prayer requests. And he was always praying for rain. And finally, one day I asked him, why are you praying for rain? Well, he was a farmer and he had strawberry fields in the local area. And if it rained, he didn't have to turn on the water pumps. And every time he'd turn on the water pumps with the power and the water, it was quite expensive and it would reduce his profits. But when it rained, that was God blessing him. And so he would constantly be praying for God to send the rain for the purpose of his crops. And he understood the blessing that it was. And it ministered to me as well because I see this man who is trusting in God and, and just uh, the, the capacity or the extent to which he's trusting in God for his very profit, just, just as we all do with our jobs, but maybe just a little bit more obvious for somebody like that. The fourth thing we see in Solomon's praying is for the calamities of natural tragedies, verses 28 through 31. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all of his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers." These sicknesses, these plagues, these diseases and whatever that man has so little control over. Just the minor things. You catch a cold and what can you do about it? You can reduce some of the effects of the symptoms, but you can't just make it go away. You can't keep yourself from that. How much more so when something difficult comes? As I said before, it seems like every week we're praying for somebody in our email prayer request prayer chain that is dealing with cancer or some other major disease. We see these major these STDs that are going on, you know, for, for instance, AIDS, and just how, how detrimental AIDS was and, and just how sudden it came out of seemingly nowhere and how it spread, and people are still dying today from, from AIDS. But nonetheless, you see how, how easily something, this, something like this can arise from seemingly nowhere and engulf the world. What happens when something worse comes and we have no resources to deal with it? Um, every year you hear about some sort of new flu or whatever it might be. It's, it's only by the hand of God that we are kept from these things. We didn't, our generation, my generation, didn't have to deal with polio. But 
I know people that have had it, and, and I know people that, I know families that had relatives that died from it. My father, two of his brothers, two of my uncles, this was 1920s, whatever, they died of pneumonia, and it was a common thing back then. We just live in this time when God has truly blessed us, but we're still vulnerable, and we still got to realize, we got to thank God, and we have to recognize it's by the hand of God that we are kept from these diseases, that we are kept from these blights and, and all of these things that could so easily come upon us, but it's God's grace as he looks down upon us that, oh, that he has lavished his love upon us. These calamities of natural tragedies are signs of end times. We saw that in our Thursday night study. But again, we see these things that are intensifying even today. And matter of fact, a lot of these natural calamities, they're happening more and more towards populated areas. It's kind of ironic that that town up north called Paradise but was decimated by fire. I know somebody who lives there, and he said he just got out by the skin of his teeth. He went in to get some stuff, looked out his window, and all of a sudden he's surrounded by fire, and he just ran out of there and and just made it. And we've heard quite a few stories of those things that are happening. It's only by the grace of God that things like that don't happen more often. Uh, There was a 7 point, I don't remember if it was 7.0, but it was in the 7s earthquake up in Alaska. Nobody that I know of died in it, but still... You know, what was the big thing in the, I remember it was in the 1960s, the San Andreas Fault, California was going to fall into the ocean. The joke was, if you want beachfront property, buy property in the desert in Nevada, and sooner or later, it'll be beachfront. Um, They say the big one's still coming. The Bible tells us of a really big one that's coming. My wife and I, we looked it up not too long ago, and um, the largest earthquakes, and the largest earthquakes that have ever happened were in the nines. I think 9.2 was the largest. I can't even imagine what that must be like. But they say bigger ones are coming. Well, who is it that holds it back? What is it that holds it back? There's not a thing that we can do to hold back an earthquake or to prevent an earthquake. We can prepare ourselves the best that we can, but when a big one comes, we're just simply at the mercy of it. I mean, that's probably the feeling that we all experience as an earthquake is going on. There's just absolutely no way to predict it and nothing you can do in the midst of it. In chapter 7, in verses 13 through 14, it says, When I shut up heaven, this is the Lord speaking, and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence amongst my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It speaks of the responsibility that they had because of the existence of the temple, but the responsibility that we have because, again, the Spirit dwells inside of us that we would be proactive in our prayer life and in our Christian lives. And what we're being told here is, is that we're able to make a difference. What's the difference that we're able to make in detail? I don't really know, but I see here what God commands us to do. The fifth thing that we see in Solomon's praying is for those who will seek God because of the existence of the temple. And really, he's speaking of the Gentiles here, verses 32 through 33. 
Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. He's wanting it to be a worldwide ministry of the Lord, a worldwide witness of the Lord. Wouldn't have used those terms back then, but that's exactly what he's desiring. Because again, what was the temple to be? It was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. We are to be this house of prayer for the purpose of all the nations as well that those on the outside would see God on the inside and they would have a heart to enter in. That because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the ends of the earth would truly know our God, that they would seek our Lord out and come to understand the salvation that is freely offered to all of mankind, which then brings us to that point, are we praying for the politician, praying, uh, interceding for the brethren and all that, but are we praying for the unsaved as well? Are we praying for the people who are lost? Are we praying that God would change hearts and God would reveal himself again through us or whoever it might be? Now here, he's praying for the people who are coming to the temple, but God's kind of changed that around. He's made it portable in you and that we leave this place and we go out into the world thinking of where is it that you're going this coming week? Where is it that you're able to bring the Lord? There was the tabernacle, that was that portable tent. There was the temple, that permanent place. But there's our temple that is um, transportable and that we are to take the gospel out and to preach to all nations. The sixth thing that we see in Solomon's prayer is for the future battles that are to be fought, verses 34 through 35. When your people go out to battle against their enemies... Wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards this city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. They're of the mindset of who is it that truly fights for a people? Israel has left Egypt, and in Exodus chapter 17, it's the first battle that Israel fights. Keep it in mind that the Jews, they were slaves in Egypt, and Egypt would not allow them to have military weapons or to be trained militarily because they would be concerned about an uprising. But they finally do. They leave Egypt, and now they're faced with this enemy, Amalek. And what do they do? Well, they're entering into their first battle. And in that first battle, a lot of times in the scripture, when something is mentioned for the first time, it sets a standard. And we see both physically and spiritually how a battle is to be fought. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Now Moses said to Joshua, Joshua was his general, if you will, chooses some men and go out and fight with Amalek, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So you have Moses, Moses' brother Aaron. It's believed that Hur was Moses' sister Miriam's husband. So his brother-in-law went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand. Again, we have that picture with Solomon. That Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand. 
Amalek prevailed. But Moses was heavy, so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the done. So Joshua defeated Amalek with his people with the edge of the sword. And so the idea is, as Moses was seeking the Lord out, just this physical picture so that Israel would know, then God would deliver them in the midst of the battle. When we get tired and we become sluggish, then the enemy has a foothold. A couple principles here. First of all, the battle, whether it's physical or spiritual, it's the Lord's. His general, Moses' general, Joshua, Joshua's name means Jehovah is Savior. Israel's first battle ever, and God is setting the example, and it's the Lord, as he was sought after, that he answered prayer. Secondly, although the battle is the Lord's, it's necessary for a couple of things to happen, and the battles to be fought. First, the people have to make the effort. God's people had to go out, and they had to actually fight the battle. In Ezekiel 22.30, we're told, So I sought for a man amongst them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but in that day he found none. And then there was the intercession of Moses, Aaron, and Hur, everybody doing their part. There was Moses seeking the Lord. There was Aaron and Hur. They were literally supporting Moses. And there was Joshua out doing the fighting. And as they were each doing their part, then God prevailed. And the third thing you see in ministry, it takes effort. It's tiring. It does take effort. How many times have you made the decision to pray and you did like Peter did in the garden, you fell asleep? Or how many times has somebody asked, you know, approached you and going through this difficult, you know what, I'll lift you up in prayer. And you have every intention to lift them up in prayer, but you don't. And the next time you see them, it's like, Oh, yeah, I forgot that promise that I, that I made to them. It, it takes our effort. And, and when we understand the reality of prayer and we understand the importance of prayer, then we'll put forth that effort. If we just take it as something routine, then that effort won't be there. And then lastly, the seventh thing we see in Solomon's prayer is those who have surrendered, verses 36 through 40. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near, yet when they come to themselves in that land when they have car- where they have carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and we have done wrong and have committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive and prayed towards their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen towards the temple, which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. You see how that was carried out in Daniel? Here Solomon, Daniel obviously was after Solomon's time. It's after Israel had been taken captive in Babylon. Daniel prayed every day. And what did he do? Just as Solomon said, he prayed towards that place. He prayed towards Jerusalem. In Daniel's prayer, you see Daniel putting himself in with the rest of the people. And what I mean by that 
it's been said Daniel and Joseph are the only people in the Bible who nothing negative is said, but it's not true. Daniel had to repent. And we see in his prayers of repentance, Daniel chapter 9, prayer, we have sinned. And, and, and to realize you're a sinner, to realize anybody's a sinner, that's the absolute worst thing that you can come to realization of. But then when you cast yourself at the grace and the mercy of God, it's a good thing that you understand the sin that exists within your lives, within our lives, that we're able to deal with it, we're able to repent of it. And so what Solomon is understanding is the necessity that, yeah, captivity is going to happen. You're going to be overrun by enemies. You're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to fail. But we have a merciful God that regardless of what we have ever done, how badly we have ever failed, we have a holy, all-powerful God who has his ear directed towards us. Now, we're told in Isaiah, and I just mentioned today, that God does not hear the prayer of the sinner. Well, he does hear one prayer of the sinner. He hears the prayer of repentance. And it's the prayer of repentance that offers up every other prayer that we could possibly give to him. So we see at the dedication as Solomon is overwhelmed by the existence and the mercy and the grace and the blessings of God, we see that prayer was presented then, and it can be so easily to be presented then, when God is good and the good things are going on, but we notice that these prayers, these prayers are to be maintained as they move on from that point and the difficult days enter in as well. If there's sin in your life, lift it up. Pray to God. Repent of it. Move on. The difficult day, we're told in Romans chapter 8, I read it earlier, verses 26 and 27, if you don't even know how to pray, just present yourself to prayer before the Lord and the Lord will direct you in prayer. We've seen at our church God do great things through the power of prayer. What excuse would we have that we would not pray? It needs to be the greatest priority within our Christian lives. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us this privilege of prayer. And I pray, Father, as we're reminded in sections of Scripture such as tonight, that we would be obedient, Lord, to come before you, to lift up our brothers and sisters, to confess our sins, Lord, and to move forward in all that you have called us to do. And so, Father, right now I just lift up those who are here tonight, Lord. I pray that you would go before them in their week. I pray, God, that you would direct their footsteps, Lord. If there's any of us who have wandered away in a sin or whatever it might be, I pray, Father, that they would have a heart to repent and get back to where we need to be. And, Father, I pray that we would move together in unity. Lord, we thank you for your word and how precious it is. And pray, Father, that we would forever value it. And as we do, Lord, I just pray again that you would do great things in us and great things through us. Lord, just be glorified through our humble efforts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Again, we'll be meeting Thursday for our midweek. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at end-time theology, the Lord's Olivet Discourse. Next Sunday, we're going to be having our Christmas celebration. We are going to be having our children's play. Um, I've been mentioning the last couple of services that we needed actors. Well, God provided the actors that we needed this morning, and so we're moving forward in a very good way, and it's just going to be a neat time. Pray about who that you would invite that day. I'm going to be giving an evangelical message, and you just never know what the good Lord is going to do. We are not going to be having, as I mentioned before, a regular evening, Sunday evening service next week, and that we're going to be having an agape feast, and we're going to be having a movie. 
the week after that is the weekend before Christmas. We're moving our Sunday evening service to uh, Sunday evening. And we're going to be having a candlelight service that evening. And we'll be having a Christmas Day service as well. We'll be back in Second Chronicles on the day before New Year's Eve on um, <laughs> December 30th. I think I got it all. If you're confused, we have it on the TVs out there. God bless you guys. to the world the Lord is come let earth receive her King let every heart prepare Him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing joy to the Lord the Savior Hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Joy to the world, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her Last night, everyone.